today, um, I've been asked to bring together Remembrance Sunday on the one hand and the next part of the Acts of Apostles, which we're looking at, which might seem an odd combination. But actually, as I, as I looked at the passage and I considered it, I saw there are, there are connections and important connections. And they might come under two headings, one of which is history and the other one is sacrifice. And I think you can see how they relate to remembrance. If we look at our... If you look at the passage, you might, in a moment, I think you might like to consider, um, <clears throat> see whether you can see those themes coming out. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold at the moment, so my voice isn't quite right, but I apologise for that. But um, for those who have not been here, and to remind us, those who have been here, um, the passage is, starts off in the middle of an episode, so it's worth think, remembering how we reach this particular point. And so... You know, in the Acts of the Apostles, it starts with the apostles and the other disciples being um, witnesses of Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension. And on the day of Pentecost, they get filled with the Holy Spirit and change completely, and they spill out onto the streets and are telling people the good news about Jesus. And um, they start getting into problems with the authorities. They heal a lame man in the, in the temple, and that's the first occasion, and they're told to shut up. And then... Um, but they carry on doing, they actually once they prayed that they might speak boldly, and that prayer was answered because they carry on speaking. They're then arrested and thrown in prison. And then an angel comes along and lets them out. Um, so the authority, and then they carry on speaking about Jesus in the temple, and so they're then hauled up before the religious authorities called the Sanhedrin, and they're becoming increasingly irritated by what the apostles were doing. So in the, they called up the port, and they're getting, um, they're really angry, and at this point, we come into the passage. You know, Peter has said um, that, you know, he says that, you know, we must, um, we are witnesses of these things, and so the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us to those who obey him, and they must obey God rather than obey men. And so if we could have the, the passage up, and I will read it. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. The Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed... All his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So if he... I've got some quotations for you today, just to see whether people are awake. Um, one or two people awake. If we have that 
Well, so here's the first quotation. Does anybody know who said this or wrote this? Anybody at all? Sorry? Ford, yes. Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company. Well done, Brian. Well done, Brian. He said, history is bunk. Henry Ford, yes. The trouble is, I think he's wrong. So there we go. <laughs> history is brilliant. You know, it's... And... Um, History connects us with people. History, connect, you know, with, with the past. We can find out about the past. And I think G Gamaliel knew about that, didn't he? Because he quoted two things that had happened about this Judas and what was the other name game? It's Judas the Galilean. Um, and what had happened to them. History teaches us. It's important. Um, remembering history. It's, have you ever looked into your ancestry? We enjoy the program. Was it, who do you think you are? About ancestry, don't we? About who who people's ancestors were. And remembrance is obviously about, you know, history and what has happened. Just to say about Gamaliel, we do know a little bit about Gamaliel um, from outside the Bible. He'd been a pupil of the famous Rabbi Hillel, and he was very well respected, as we said. We also know from the Bible that he had a, a certain pupil um, who came from Tarsus, who... Um, he, what, he, what he did, he actually had a, initially opposed the Christians, as we'll find out in a couple of chapters, and, um, but he had a change of mind and a change of name. He wrote a few letters and went on travels around. He was called Paul, and um, features major, majorly in the New Testament. Um, but history, I think one of the interesting things about history is when you, when you start getting old, like me, you start finding that things are history which you lived through. Uh, and so, <laughs> and you're like, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, because we're coming up to the third season of The Crown. Do you watch The Crown? Who watches The Crown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know it's got, we've got things coming like Prince Charles's investiture as Prince of Wales. You know, I, I remember that. <laughs> so it's really interesting to see how they portray events that, you know, at a time when I was actually becoming conscious of events in the world around me. Um, Considering history sort of puts us on a bigger stage from our own, just our own little world. We connected to, the, as I said, the past and to the people around us. It's also good to know history because it helps to understand situations. Um, for instance, you really won't understand what the issues are in Ireland unless you know something about the history of Ireland over, you know, 300 years. It's important to know it. And so here's another quotation, and... I wonder if anybody at all knows who said this. Sorry? No, no. <laughs> anyway, you don't know, you probably don't know. It's George Santayana, who's a South American philosopher about 100 years or so ago. Anyway, but this is a very important thing that if you can't remember history, remember the past, he said you're condemned to repeat it. So the past history is there to teach us. So history is not just about the, what's gone on. It's here for the present and to inform us about the future, where we're going. We don't learn from it. We repeat things. And that's what Gamaliel was doing in this passage, wasn't he? He was saying, look, this happened to these, these two guys. They thought they were something. We thought, you know, they were thought they were the, you know, they probably thought they were the Messiah. But, you know, it all went wrong and they died and it all fizzled away. He was learning from history, say, how we deal with things. Um, and again, something that's interesting getting old is that the way we've 
done remembrance has changed. I think when I was young, it every, all this happened on the 11th of November, whatever day of the week it was. Then it sort of faded, so it got shifted to the Sunday nearest the 11th of November. Um, but in the last, I suppose it's 15 years, maybe 20 years, it's come back. So now we've got, you know, the, um, on the Felton, the Felton Community Facebook page, Lots of stuff about the poppies you now get on um, lampposts, isn't it? You know, that, that never happened 10 years ago. Certainly didn't happen sort of just after the, you know, after the World War War. But, um, so it's, it's been a resurgence of this remembrance. And, but I think, in, to what extent are we actually using this remembrance to learn about the future, or how we can do things in the future? Just yesterday, I came across a quotation um, from Dennis Healy, who... Um, I don't suppose many of you remember, he was a Labour Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1970s. And in his autobiography, apparently, he suggested that politicians who have never fought in or experienced a war are more likely to send our troops into war in the future. That's an interesting one. So does our remembrance, as we remember the events of world wars and other wars, does it counteract or reinforce the tendency to send people off to fight. There's something else Gamaliel has to teach us about history and events. In the middle of the passage, it says, he says to the Sanhedrin, he says, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. He knows that God is not distant. God is involved in this world. And we know that's because he loves this world. So, this is not a quotation. Well, a number of people have said this. but uh, So, history is about his story, where he is God. God's story. If we look at history as a whole, there's a great sweep of events. The ultimate big picture is the story, is God's story, from creation to consummation. There's a revolt in it, and rescue, and redemption, and restoration. And the pivot point of that story is when God stepped into the world and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, as in the Jesus whom the apostles preached about, who had the good news. And I think even on this Remembrance Day, it's worth remembering that God has been at work. And a question might be, what was the crucial battle in World War II? Was it D-Day? Well, I've heard that it's not really, because Hitler had already lost the war in the East. I would suggest Dunkirk, because if that battle had been lost utterly... Hitler would have been able to pursue his ambitions in the East without having to put resources into defending the western side of his empire. Britain, um, Britain would have been capitulated um, and America would not have been able to join in. in. In May 1940, so we'll be remembering it 80 years on next year, the beginning of an extraordinary week, um, George VI, the king, called for a national day of prayer. And on the Sunday, churches and cathedrals were packed, apparently the queuing up to get in. The following week, 
there were some extraordinary events. Hitler stopped his soldiers attacking. The weather became bad, so the Luftwaffe couldn't, um, couldn't stop the soldiers reaching the beaches at Dunkirk. But the next day, the English Channel became completely calm and enabled the famous little ships, 800 ships, crossed to help evacuate the soldiers from the beaches. A third of a million men were rescued. It was described as the miracle of Dunkirk. And so what was seemed a defeat actually, in the end, enabled the victory that was to follow. And Gamaliel, as a Jew, would have known the importance of remembering, because the Jews, much of what they do is built around remembering the great acts of God in history, particularly their rescue from slavery in Egypt. Our song, in the reference to walking through the water, is an allusion to that when they escape through the Red Sea, um, and then having gone through, Pharaoh's army followed and got uh, swamped. Their whole life, Passover, is about remembering what God has done, but also it's about looking to the future. The remembering forms them as a people. So Remembrance Day might help us think about how we fit into our own country's, our own nation's story. But that's a bigger picture, is how to ask do I, how do we, fit into God's big story. And this then brings us to the other connection I found between the events here in Acts and Remembrance, which is sacrifice. Now, here's another quotation which you may, somebody may know about. All these young people that have no idea. You need to learn history. <laughs> Kennedy, yes. JFK, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, said that on his inauguration speech in 1961. Do not ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And Remembrance Day is very much about those who asked the second question rather than the first. Sometimes what you, can, what you could do for your country means that you were not allowed to join up and fight, and that happened to my father. His knowledge and skills about metals meant he was sent to develop um, weapons at a factory in a place called Berkeley near Newcastle. However, he was able to join something which became known as Churchill's Secret Army. Often like young men like him, in what's called reserved occupations, they were trained and equipped to sabotage behind enemy lines in case of invasion. And so he actually, in his digs, unknown to his landlord and landlady, had explosives and grenades and things um, stored away. Officially, they were part of the home guard, although they weren't treated, they were treated much better than the ordinary home guard. You know, it was Dad's army. And I can prove it, because here is his battle dress top, which he kept, and I've, and I've kept. And it's got, DA, it's got home guard on the sleeve there. DHM is for County Durham. And you'll see he's got his sergeant stripes. So yes, my father was Sergeant Wilson in the Home Guard. <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, yeah, so... <laughs> but, so he, he, he never actually saw action. It was, it was thought that if there had been an invasion, they might last six weeks. Anyway, but uh, here's another quotation. This is one from the Second World War, which is a bit of a clue. 
Churchill, indeed. That was what he said to his new cabinet when he fought just in a couple of weeks before Dunkirk. He became prime minister and formed a cabinet. It's what he said to them, and it's what he said in a speech in the House of Commons. Nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I'll tell you about my mother's best friend, Peggy. And she told me at a get-together we had for our mother's, my mother's 70th birthday. She said, I've known your mother for 60 years, and we've never had a crossword. But Peggy's first husband was a fighter pilot, and he was killed, leaving his young wife and a baby girl. I'm sure there were many tears then. This connection, blood, toil, tears, and sweat, obviously connects to the experience of the apostles. Their lives were spared by Gamaliel's intervention, but they were flogged. And this is probably what is called, is called the, the 40 lashes minus one. They sort of kept one back. Um, but it still could kill, and they probably bore the scars from that flogging for the rest of their lives. But there is this extraordinary sentence. I think I've got it on the slide. Yes. Oh, no, no. That's... Um, which we read, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They'd been flogged with an inch of their lives and they're pleased about it. It's interesting that what actually they say is that it was because that they were disgraced rather than just the pain. So it wasn't the pain they were rejoicing in, it was the shame. Their culture, like Eastern cultures today, put much greater store on honour and shame and its opposite, shame. So this phrase about rejoicing in suffering disgrace is a paradox they count themselves honoured to be shamed. Extraordinary, isn't it? And I think, you know, bears thinking about to what extent our experience of being a Christian might be one of being shamed and excluded rather than suffering physically. But if we remember, but I think the reason they were rejoicing is they were remembering some words of Jesus, and these, here they are. <coughs> Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just say that, notice that the persecution is because of righteousness and because of Jesus. If you're persecuted because you're an awkward so-and-so, or you get up people's nose, um, <coughs> you can't rejoice because of that persecution. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just to say, you know, some people might think, you know, that um, people are treating me hardly, and that's, that, that's rejoice. But, um, but. Now, you might have heard that, you know, some people say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And if that means a nice, comfortable life, a peaceful life, with a nice house, nice spouse, nice job, nice car... Somebody must have lost the memo when it came to the apostles, didn't it? John was exiled to Patmos, a small island, and the rest died violently. And not only 
the apostles who were there at this point in Acts. Paul himself, when he was around, he actually boasted of his sufferings to the Corinthians. He said, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly in danger, been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? How does that sound as a wonderful plan for your life? <laughs> Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why is this? Well, Andy reminded us last week that there is a battle on. It's a struggle against principalities and powers. The dominion of darkness does not give up its rule willingly. And Jesus was clear. There is a cost to following him. We need to reckon that cost. And it's a cost because if we follow him, we go the way that he lived. He went along a path of suffering and disgrace. He said of himself, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, in speaking of Jesus, says this. He says to the Christians in Philippi, have this mind, same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Cross was the most shameful form of death. And when it says their servant, it should really say slave, the most despised and lowest people in the society at the bottom. And it was true for Jesus, it was true for the first Christians, and as the, the church went on over the next couple of centuries, it continued to be true. Here's another quotation, and I'm, I suspect that nobody knows, oh, Josh may know. <laughs> no, it's a guy called Tertullian, who lived, and it was around about 200 AD, so sort of nearly 200 years after Jesus. And the word martyr, comes from the Greek, a Greek word which just means witness. But many of these early Christians, they witnessed to their faith because what they did was they were told to renounce their faith in Jesus and they refused to do so. And as a result, they were killed. So the word martyr has become associated with death. And what he said was that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It seems strange, but when people give up their lives in witnessing to Jesus, that that actually calls the church to grow. There's a guy called Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist who studied the rise of Christianity over those sort of first 300 years. 
And his research suggests that in these times, a time of at least periodic persecution, the church grew at a steady rate of about 40% per decade, and that's compounding. So before, you know, he actually says there were really quite a small number of Christians at sort of about 80 AD. But by the time Constantine became emperor and associated himself with, with Christianity, he reckons that it might have been as many as 50% of the people in the Roman Empire were Christians. It had taken over despite being persecuted. We get the same sort of thing actually in the 20th century. In China, Western missionaries, when Hudson Taylor went there with the China Inland Mission in the 19th century, and they continued to work there. Um, but um, in 1949, communism took over and they expelled all the Westerners. And they thought there might have been about a million Christians there in China at the time. What happened to them? There was no po possibility of contact for many years of the Cultural Revolution, things like that. And um, they were almost certainly persecuted. Eventually, sort of things opened up a bit and they got it able to go back in. Westerners were able to go back and make contact with it. It's reckoned now there are about 100 million Christians in China. China may be, may be the country with the most Christians in it quite soon. Extraordinary growth. And, this, you know, and the last 100 years have probably been, I, I've heard it said that more Christians have died for their faith in the last 100 years than in the preceding 1900 years. But the church continues to grow, and it seems to grow especially in places where there is persecution. An example is Iran. It's very hard to be a Christian in Iran. But people are becoming Christians, and they're finding ways of meeting together as, as, as Christians. And, you know, they have to go under the radar. They can't meet in a building like this at all. But they're finding ways of following their faith in that very difficult country. So... We go back to what Gamaliel said. He says, if their purpose or activity is human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. And there's actually a little subtlety in the Greek there, in the sense that we're talking about human activity. It says it might be of human origin. But he says, if it is from God, perhaps he was... To some, make it, that he'd made his, up his mind about, about this already, and there is a tradition that he became a Christian. And I think Luke puts this in the point of the story, actually to pose the same question to the reader. He says, is this what I'm describing in, in this book? Is it of men, or is it of God? And he says, he goes on, and at the end of Acts, he doesn't sort of finish nicely, he doesn't nicely round it off. Paul arrives in Rome, and then just sort of stops. That's as if the, he's wanting the story to carry on, to sweep on to the present, even up to the present day. You know, is God in this? Well, I suggest that the history of the church is saying, yes, it is. It hasn't stopped. Because the official title for this talk um, is The Church Unstoppable. And it comes from that phrase, I imagine, if, if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. The apostles are irrepressible, unstoppable. You know, they were told to, st told to stop, put in prison for talking about Jesus, pulled up for the beak, told to stop again, flogged. So they go away, rejoicing, and there it is at the end. They never stopped teaching 
and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And the people have not stopped doing that ever since. The Holy Spirit, perhaps they couldn't, couldn't stop. Perhaps the Holy Spirit had so filled them up with this sense of good news. That's the good news. Proclaiming the good news is just one verb in the Greek. They good newsed Jesus Christ. That's basically what it says. And um, it bubbled up of them. It overflowed out of them. They could not but talk about Jesus, who he is, his saviour and Lord. So this is Remembrance Sunday. We look at our poppies, and we're grateful for those who gave their lives for our nation. We consider them worthy to be honoured. And I used the word sacrifice earlier. It's not an inappropriate word to use for those who give their lives. But the word comes from Latin for something which means to be made holy by being offered to God. So to follow Jesus is to offer your life to him. It is not to ask what he can do for you, but to ask what you can do for him. And so if we consider the example of the apostles, where this leaves me is pondering, am I willing to pay the cost? Am I willing to suffer disgrace or worse for Jesus' sake? Would I rejoice and count myself honoured to suffer in this way? Am I so full, like the apostles, so full of the news, good news about Jesus that I cannot but speak of it? But what I do know is that in time in remembrance, I give thanks for those in times past and in times present in many different places, who are so filled with the good news of Jesus, who did count themselves worthy of suffering disgrace, and who bore suffering even unto death, so that I, so that we, could know and find out about Jesus. Amen.